God's impassibility. So last week was God's immutability, uh, the fact that God does not change. We all agreed that God does not change in His nature, um, but then we made some room uh, to disagree on the issue of whether God changes in His relationship toward the world. We looked at the different type of ways of making sense of that and so on and so forth, and today the jump from impassibility, or excuse me, immutability to impassibility is um, a rather small one. So we'll still be doing some theological reasoning and a little bit of heavy lifting, but if you were able to get last week, then this week shouldn't be too bad. So anyway, with that, let's just go ahead and get into it. The heart of impassibility is that God is not emotionally conditioned by his creatures. So to say that God is impassable, bottom line, means that God is not emotionally conditioned by his creatures. That is, he is not susceptible to being moved this way or that way by an external influence, human, angelic, or otherwise. Right? So anything in the created order, it doesn't move upon God emotionally. Now, the important word in our quasi-definition that I just gave is the word conditioned. Now, the word condition, as defined by the Oxford English Dictionary, means to have a significant influence on or determine the manner or outcome of something. So I can be conditioned by something and it has a significant influence on or determines the manner or outcome of something. Therefore, to say that God is emotionally unconditioned by the created order is to say that his emotional makeup is not determined or influenced by us. God's emotional makeup is not determined or influenced by us. Instead, what we mean when we say that God is impassable, we're saying that God's emotions are self-derived. They are governed by his own unchangeable wisdom and goodness. So, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this, or really at all. I just didn't even have it in here, but just go ahead and it's worth bringing up that it, it comes from the doctrine of aseity. God is from himself, right? He isn't determined. He isn't contingent on anything but himself. And so it follows, right, then that God is emotionally uncontingent. Now, contrast that with our emotional makeup. Our emotions are certainly not self-derived. More often, rather than determining our emotions, our emotions determine us. Unlike God's emotions, ours are contingent on more factors than we would care to admit. Aaron has learned my emotional contingency because as soon as I become a little irritable or grumpy, she knows it's time to eat. My emotions are contingent. And so it goes for the rest of us. There are countless other factors, sleep, our schedule, our spiritual health, our, or I guess the ordinary events of life, of, of life. These all influence and determine, right back to our definition, they condition our emotions. They have a significant influence on the way we react. And again, that's just what it means to be a creature. We live in a world where we are actors and we are acted upon. Wesley Hill, a theologian who's writings I like in particular, he says, being creatures, we are not only the subject of actions, but we receive or suffer the actions of others. Right again, so I'm an actor, you're an actor, we determine things in the world, but as much as we determine things, we are determined. He says, we receive or suffer the actions of others. They have an influence upon our emotional makeup. So, To sum up the matter, we can be emotionally manipulated, surprised, and overwhelmed, but God cannot. His emotional makeup is self-derived, ours is not. He is impassable, we are passable. So, we'll get into questioning this and trying to uh, make room for those questions, but right now all I want to do is make sure that we understand the two basic differences between impassable and passable. One is emotionally invulnerable, you can say. I don't like to say that because it sounds a little bit too 
I don't know, a little bit too harsh and cold, but it helps for our purposes. One's emotionally invulnerable, the other is emotionally vulnerable. So I just want to make sure that we're all agreeing on that basic definition of impassibility. Because what I want to do now is take it a step further and tease out some of the different elements of what we mean um, a little bit a little bit more deeply. So the Oxford um, Dictionary of Christian of the Christian Church defines impassibility this way, and we'll break each one of these down. It says there are three respects in which Orthodox theology has traditionally denied subjection, God's subjection to passibility, namely one external passibility or the capacity to be acted upon from without, two internal passibility or the capacity for changing the emotions from within, and three, sensational passibility, or the liability to feelings of pleasure and pain caused by the actions of another being. So let's just take each one of those as we go. First, when we say that God is impassable, we're saying that he is not, well, the definition says he's not subject to external passibility or the subject to be acted upon, or, excuse me, Eternal past, or the capacity to be acted upon from without. So that pertains to, the first part of that definition pertains to what I just laid out. That again, God's emotions are self-derived rather than determined by anything outside of him. God doesn't have the capacity to be acted upon from without, right? This is that emotional invulnerability we're talking about. Now the second part of the definition, it says internal passibility or what we're denying is, what impassibility denies is internal passibility or the capacity for changing the emotions from within. Okay, so not only is God um, uncontingent by the created order, it doesn't affect his emotional makeup, um, but we're saying that God in his own being doesn't change his emotions. And they don't give it in the definition, but the answer would be God doesn't change his emotions because there is no need to change his emotions. We'll get into that a little bit later, but I just want you to get the basic understanding there. And then three, impassibility denies sensational passibility or the liability to feelings of pleasure and pain caused by the action of another being. The important part in that definition there is the, um, the, the term feelings, the feelings of pleasure that God doesn't have feelings in the same way that we have feelings, and so on and so forth. Okay, so impassibility. God's not contingent on, on his emotional makeup, isn't contingent based on the created order, and neither does God change his own order, and his feelings are different than ours. We'll leave it at that for now. Now we want to go to the other side and define passibility. Theologian Thomas Wayne Andy, we're going to be using his work, Does God Suffer, um, uh, more than we have other works in our, uh, in our lecture today because, well, it's really good and it's very helpful. So he says, for God to be passable means that, one, he is capable of being acted upon from without and that such actions bring about emotional changes of state within him. Moreover, for God to be passable means that, two, he is capable of freely changing his inner emotional state in response to an interaction with the changing human condition and world order. Lastly, passibility implies, three, God's changing emotional state involves feelings that are analogous to human feelings. So, one, he is capable of being, of being acted upon from without such that actions bring about emotional changes of state within him. So, it's just the exact opposite of impassibility, where we'd say, okay, impassibility says God's not contingent, Passibility says, yes, God is contingent, that his makeup is not entirely self-derived, but is susceptible and vulnerable to change based on what happens in the created order. So therefore, let's say a tragedy happens in either someone's life or on a larger global scale, passibility would say that before that change, God could have been in one state after that tragedy, now God is in another state. His emotional state changes in response to what is happening in the world. And then, two, he is capable of freely changing his inner emotional state in response to and interactions with the changing human conditions and the world 
order. So the second part of the definition, some theologians, well, most theologians either affirm one or the other. Because really, if you affirm that God can be affected by the world, there's no need to say that God changes himself because he can be affected. Now, some say God can't be affected by the world, but he can change his own emotions. And that's the second part. God sovereignly changes his emotional state based on his interaction um, with the world and the changes in the world. So God is sovereign over his own change. He changes his own emotional state. We'll get to more on that later as well. But moving on, the third part of the definition, God's changing emotional state involves feelings that are analogous to human feelings. Again, the word feelings. We'll get to that as well, but there's the idea that God's feelings are somewhat like our feelings and that they involve the same sort of sensations and surprise and so on and so forth. So, before we move on, I just again want to make sure we're all on the same page. Is there any questions about maybe the meaning of some of those terms, the definition of what we're going on? Because I just want to set the table that way we can move forward and have some more um, substantial discussion. Any questions about that? Mike? All emotions are eternal generated. Okay, some would argue. What do you think? Right. And I agree, right? In, in, in what you said there, Mike, and I think what a pacifist would say in relation to God is that, yeah, love, or let's say anger, anger is there, but something draws it out. Something brings out that anger in a person, and they would say the same thing in God. And impassibility would actually deny that. They would say, well, yeah, God has anger, but it doesn't need to be drawn out. It's purely active. So we'll get to that too when we talk about divine perfection. But uh, is there any questions uh, along the same lines about what we're talking about? Passability, impassibility? Fairly straightforward? Joey? Right. Sure, absolutely. And I think that gets us, again, to the heart of what we're talking about, that God is, you know, the most wrong being. Because in a sense, that is true, right? I mean, Psalm 51 says, against you and you only have I sinned. So every sin, in a sense, is a fault and a wrong against God's nature. But to answer that question, it is getting ahead a little bit, but that's all right. Um, To answer that question, my answer would be, Yes, God is wrong, but praise the Lord. He's not conditioned by that wrong. He does not reward us according to our iniquities. Yeah, he's wrong, but that doesn't determine his response to us. What determines his response to us is his own unchangeable nature, his love that is fixed, his grace that is fixed. So yeah, God is wrong, but he's not, he's not in, so injured by it that he's like, okay, I, you know, he's like, you know, like, there's people in your life or any of our lives that are so dear to us that, you know, someone else could say the very same thing. I'd be like, yeah, whatever. And then, you know, it was your wife, someone tell you that, and you're just, you're crippled because they have such a nearness to you. But with God, he's, again, that unconditionedness protects us from being destroyed. You know what I mean? From I, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. Because I don't change, I'm not bursting out in wrath against you like you deserve, right? So, yeah, and we'll come back to that because that's the practical element of impassibility that I really want to develop a little bit further. So any questions building on a little bit of what Joey said? Or just want to make sure we got those terms down. Okay, good. So uh, now that we got the terms, what I'd like to do is give you a little bit of historical development of the doctrine to see how this uh, has moved on a little bit. So, impassibility 
God's emotional uncontingency, has enjoyed a wide acceptance in the church until recently. And by recently, I mean the past 300 years or so. Again, Thomas Wayne Andy, in his book, he identifies three main reasons why impassibility was rejected. And I came upon his book first, but the more I read around, the more I found that these very same reasons were pretty common in all the books that I came across, that these are the main reasons why people reject impassibility. So the first one, first reason why people rejected impassibility was because of human suffering. Again, Wayne Andy says, historically, the question of God's passibility focused primarily and at times almost exclusively upon the issue of whether God could suffer. And that might be the best way of asking the question, is God impassable or not? Can God suffer? Can God be wounded, right? He's the most wounded being. Can God be hurt by us? Can he suffer? So on and so forth. So, of course, humans have always suffered terribly. I mean, tragedy and war, these things are not anything new. But in light of the horrific evils of the 20th century, Nazi concentration camps, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Armenian genocide, these conflicts on a scale that was before unimaginable, in light of these events, theologians began to rethink their doctrine of God, particularly the doctrine of impassibility. Theologian Richard Bachman, um, he articulates the sentiment well. In his book, um, Jesus and the God of Israel, he says, the basic problem with traditional theism, with its purely active, impassable God, is the problem of theodicy. How can an all-powerful and invulnerable creator and ruler of the world be justified in the face of the enormity of human suffering? So it's a very real question, and one that, one, one that no one should dismiss, right? In light of this, in light of such the enormity of human suffering, how can we maintain that God remains in heaven, invulnerable from it all? So to solve this problem, some theologians begin to tinker with the doctrine of God. They begin to say, okay, I know we've received this um, understanding of God as derived from the Scriptures, but... Maybe we need to make some change here. So in light of human suffering, this invulnerable God no longer made sense. People not only cried out for a God who witnessed their suffering, but who participated in it, who himself suffered. The most famous of all passibilist theologians, Jürgen Moltmann, in his book, The Crucified God. Now a little bit of context. Jürgen Moltmann he was a Nazi um, soldier in World War II. And he saw things and he participated in things that, of course, he was horrified by. And it was, he was a prisoner of war with the Allied troops. And there he was given a Bible and he was reading the Bible. And that's where he was converted, where he realized in his mind, that God suffers along with us. And so he wrote this book, The Crucified God, and I've quoted it. In fact, it was what started me on this whole journey toward thinking about these things. I was sitting at a basketball game, and I was there to watch one specific player, and he was on the bench, so I had this book, and I was reading through it, and I began to think, man, some of the things he's saying, I don't know about this. They, it was new, and it was interesting, and so he got me down this road. But anyway, all that aside, in his book, he says, to the question of suffering, any other answer would be blasphemy. There cannot be any other Christian answer to the question of this torment. To speak of a God who could not suffer would make God a demon. So he says, in light of all this suffering, he says, God has to suffer. Anything else is not Christian. It makes God into a demon. So again, there's a very strong emotional appeal there. Now, forced to rethink the doctrine of impassibility by human suffering on such an immense and unprecedented scale, theologians found a ready ally and firm warrant, it appeared, in the Scriptures themselves. Now, I want to make the note, both impassibility theologians and passibility theologians are reading the same Scripture. It's just they're reading it different ways. So, as the old doctrine began to kind of fade out of view, 
They begin to look at Scripture and say, oh, well, goodness, it's all over the place. God's change, His emotional states going from one to the other is all over the Scriptures. How did we ever miss it? And one of the favorite arguments of passibilist theologians is rooted in God's love. Because certainly God is love, therefore, if He is love, He must suffer with His beloved. And if God is incapable of suffering along with the person, the beings that He loves, then, well, He must be, um, he must be incapable of love also. If He can't suffer, how can He be capable of love? So again, Moltmann leads, leads the charge. He says, A God who cannot suffer is poorer than any man. For a God who is except, incapable of suffering is a being who cannot be involved. Suffering and injustice do not affect him. And because he is so completely insensitive, he cannot be affected or shaken by anything. He cannot weep, for he has no tears. But the one who cannot suffer cannot love either. So he is a loveless being. Aristotle's God cannot love. He can only be loved by all, divine, divine, all non-divine beings by virtue of his perfection and beauty, and in this way draw them to him. The unmoved mover is a loveless beloved. Again, you get the argument he's making, right? If God cannot suffer, he cannot love because he can't be moved. He can't be affected. He's like this. He's the unmoved mover of Aristotle and so on and so forth. He calls him the loveless beloved. So the loving and therefore suffering God, the passibilist theologian said, is most evident in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. T.F. Torrance, another theologian who I've gained a lot from, says, What Christ felt, did and suffered in himself, in his body and soul for our forgiveness, was done, felt, and suffered by God in his innermost being for our sake. So on the cross, it wasn't just the human nature of Jesus that was suffering, but it was the divine nature of Jesus that was suffering. He says, God suffered in his innermost being. For our sake. Again, so you see the arguments are mounting for the case of passability. And then last, the last accusation, and we approached this last week, but for those of you who weren't here, I'll just rehash a little bit of it. It's called the Hellenization hypothesis. And essentially what it means, or what it is, is a charge that the church fathers, first century to fourth century theologians and pastors, uncritically and naively accepted the ideas of Greek philosophy and baptized them into the Christian understanding of God. So we took from Plato, we took from Aristotle, we took from Socrates, and, and, and all we did was just bring that into Christian theology and say, look, this is how we should understand God. That's the accusation. From the outset then, Christian theology was infected with the cancer that, it, that was transmitted all throughout history. Listen to theologian T.E. Pollard. He says, Among the many Greek philosophical ideas imported into Christian theology and into Alexandrian Jewish theology before it is the idea of the impassable God. And this idea furnishes us with a particularly striking illustration of the damage done by the assumption of an alien philosophical presuppositions when they are applied to Christian theology. So alien is the idea, so foreign is it to Hebraic Christian thought, that it makes nonsense of the revelation of God in the Old Testament, it makes the incarnation no real incarnation, and reduces the suffering and death of Christ to a purely human work. So, he says, impassibility, immutability, simplicity, all the things that we've been talking about, these are Greek doctrines. And they, make, they just destroy the Old Testament, they destroy the incarnation, and they make the suffering and death of Jesus Christ merely a human work. So, again, only now after Christian theology's long Greek hangover have we finally rid ourselves of a pagan understanding of God and only now we are free to return to the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, right? That's what the Hellenization hypothesis says. So, I hope I'm not belaboring the point, but it's evident why the notion of a passable God became so popular. The arguments, excuse me, their arguments appeal to us on a deep emotional level. Add a little bit of caricature, a little bit of moral outrage, and you've got a large portion of the population that's convinced. 
That's the truth. That's what we should believe. In fact, divine impassibility is the minority position today. Theologian Marcel Seurat said, during this, recent, during this present century, the idea that God is immutable and impassable has slowly but surely given way to the idea that God is sensitive, emotional, and passionate. By now, the rejection of the ancient doctrine of divine impassibility has so much become a theological commonplace that many theologians do not even feel the need to argue for it. Yes? I'll just repeat that for you guys. Uh, Barney said that, of course, through the relation of the man Jesus Christ to the second person of the Trinity, that if Jesus suffered, then God suffered, right? So, so you're agreeing with some of the things that were said there. We'll get to that. We've got a whole section on the incarnation. Um, it's confusing stuff, but we'll get to it. We'll talk about that. Um, any questions about that section? Um, I just wanted to, again, give you the bearings. Okay, fun stuff. Let's defend the doctrine of divine impassibility. In my mind, the most obvious and straightforward reason for affirming impassibility is God's timeless eternity. The basic claim of the doctrine of timeless eternity is that God does not experience successive states of being. That is, He does not receive Himself from the future or from the past, nor does, um, excuse me, He does not receive Himself from the future, nor lose himself to the past, but God exists in the eternal present. Now, timeless eternity, I'm appealing to common ground here. There's a million instances in the scripture that speak of God's sovereignty over time, his transcendence over time. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one who is, the one who's to come, and the one who will be, so on and so forth, right? We know all those scriptures. So, what I want to do is just try to explain the doctrine as best as possible. Francis Turretin, um, a theologian in the 15th century, 16th century, um, states it this way. God has every moment, all at once, whatever we have, dividedly by succession of time. Hence, philosophers have well said that neither the future nor the past, he will be or was, but only the present, he is, can be properly applied to him. For the eternal duration of God embraces indeed all time, the past, present, and future. But nothing in him can be past or future because his life remains always the same and immutable. So, it's not proper to say of God he was or he will be, but only he is. He doesn't have, his life isn't divided up into past, present, and future, but rather in him, these, his, uh, his life encompasses the duration of all eternity. Stephen Carnock, a theologian we've been quoting, he says it even a little bit better. All things pass from one state to another, from their origin to their eclipse and destruction. But God possesses his being in one indivisible point, having neither beginning, end, nor middle. I love that he just says, God possesses his life in one indivisible point. There is no beginning with God. There's no middle with God. There's no end with God. He transcends time. And Augustine of Hippo, as he does, says it better than all of them. Your years do not come and go. Our years pass and new ones arrive only so that they may come in turn. But your years stand all at once because they are stable. There is no pushing out of vanishing years by those that are coming on, because with you none are transient. Your today does not give way to tomorrow, nor follow yesterday. Your today is eternity. God's years don't come and go. One year doesn't push out the next. 2020 doesn't give way to 2021. Rather, in God, all things hold together in, as Carnock said, one indivisible point. So, before moving on, I just want to make sure, are we all in agreement about God's timeless eternity? Mike? Yes. 
Sure. Sure. Okay. So I'm I'm will I'm totally on board with saying, I, I think he was using that more as kind of a uh, a placeholder because right how can you truly describe what it is to be out of time locked within time yourself? But one thing, if we do know what time is, one thing we can say is what eternity is not, and it's not past, present, or future. Right. If that's what time is, then certainly God is. He's not bound by those same things. So I think that one thing we can agree on. Maybe it could be more than past, present, and future. It certainly could be more, but I don't think it's anything less. Right? I think to carry on the discussion, I think we'd all agree that it's not anything less than the fact that God doesn't have a beginning, middle, or end, but he just is. Right? Alpha and Omega. Does that suffice, you think? Yeah, Ginger? Yes. Right. Right. Yes. Yes, and I agree 100% with what you just said, in uh, there is an appearance, because that's what we talked about last week, that if God truly is unchanging, then, yeah, we may experience him to be changing. We may experience change, but is God himself changing? Is his eternal will and his plan, is that changing? I don't think so, right? So I 100% agree with what Ginger just said. So it seems that if we acknowledge God's timeless eternity, and we all do, then we must acknowledge his immutability and his impassibility. Because again, as we said, time is the measure of change and motion. And if God is outside of time and above time, eternally present, then he must be without change. Again, if, God's etern- if God is eternally present, then um, emotional change and fluctuation is impossible. That is, his human nature, or excuse me, that is, his nature excludes the possibility that one emotion would come upon him from the future and then be sustained in the present and then be lost to the past. If God doesn't have those moments, right, if God isn't bound within time as we are, then it's illogical to say, yeah, God changes. One emotion comes upon him, it's sustained, and then it's lost. And then another one comes upon him. It doesn't stand if we're going to affirm that God is eternal. So rather, what we'd say is that God simply is without transition or succession of states. Thus, though he acts within time, though he truly is involved with the world, he does so without submitting himself to the constraints of time. He's Lord of time and he's not bound by time. Even in the incarnation, the divine nature is not bound by human limitations. So, again, one powerful reason for affirming divine impassibility. The second, I believe, is divine uh, divine perfection. If we affirm impassibility, then again, it's a veiled affirmation of divine perfection, or rather vice versa. Last week, when we talked about God's immutability, remember, we denied that God has potential, right? Potential is a creaturely thing. That is, God does not have the capacity to become or to develop into a greater version of himself, like we do, right? We are growing up into the image of Christ, ever increasing into that perfect man. But God doesn't have any growth to be realized. He has no potential. Rather, he is perfect, right? That's what the theologians say. Their term to describe God's perfection is pure act. God's love, it doesn't need to increase. It can't decrease because it's perfect. It excludes the possibility of change. Now, as God's perfections relate to his emotions, again, it's very simple. His emotions are perfectly realized. Therefore, they cannot change. So, we just talked about God's timeless eternity, And that means God's emotions don't change from one to another. 
doesn't he doesn't have anger and then he doesn't have uh, uh, joy. But these are all they simply are. It just is in God. That's timeless eternity. Now God's perfection means that God's emotions don't change in their degree of intensity. So it's not like his anger with sin retreats to the back and then something happens and it comes rushing forward. Rather, in God, these things are perfectly realized. God is always righteously angry with sin. He's righteous. He's angry with the unwicked every day, the scripture, or the, with, the, with the wicked every day, the unrighteous every day, the scripture says, and so on and so forth. So, again, what we're saying here is that God's emotions are not passive or reactive. They neither wax nor wane. They neither grow more fervent nor less. Rather, they simply and always perfectly are. They just are. There is no slippage. There's no slack. There's no latency in God's emotions. Instead, they are eternally and utterly engaged. Again, Matthew Barrett, none greater, he says, impassibility means his love is so maximally alive, so fully and completely in act that he cannot become more loving than he already is eternally. And so it goes for his emotions, right? God, God doesn't, he, 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 again, these are accommodations and we'll get to how to deal with scripture in a minute, um, but it appears a certain way to us, yet God is this way in himself. Last one, and then we'll open it up a little bit, um, is divine simplicity. Again, another reason for affirming divine immutability is the doctrine of divine simplicity. Again, remember the definition of simplicity, God is what he has, right? God doesn't have particular attributes, love, wisdom, and power, but God is those attributes. In other words, God is identical with his attributes. He doesn't have love, but he is love. He doesn't have wisdom, but he is wisdom. He doesn't have power, but he is power. And again, as it pertains to God's emotions, the logic of simplicity is fairly straightforward. I love the way theologian Scott Swain puts it. He has this nice little essay called A Theology of Happiness. He says, nothing makes God happy. God does not have happiness. God is happiness by his essence. So hold on to that one for a minute. Let's just take a step back, right? We love to affirm God's agape love. When we talk about God's agape love, what we mean is that his love isn't contingent upon us. He loves us not because we're lovely, not because we're somehow so worthy of his love, but, because, because, but he loves us because of who he is. And because who he is, he can love us despite our sin. He can love us despite our failure. There's nothing that he loses or gains by it. He can just love and love and love, right? God's unconditioned love. Now we're just applying that same logic to these other attributes. There's nothing that makes God happy. Rather, God just is happiness itself. That is, the created reality cannot make God any more or less happy than he eternally is. Because happiness or any other emotion for that matter, is not accidental to God, but is his very nature. And again, the same holds for all other divine emotions, whatever they are. There's trouble categorizing exactly what God's emotions are, but they're not things that he has capable of fluctuation and change, but rather what God is existing in God as God, right? So, um, I'd like to open it up a little bit now. Timeless eternity, um, divine perfection, and then uh, simplicity as all arguments for reasons why we should infirm divine um, impassibility. And I didn't mention immutability last week because we covered that. The flow is pretty easy. And then aseity, right? It makes even more sense from that standpoint. So that said, any questions? Um, Maybe some of that doesn't stand up. I don't know. Any questions? I just want to make sure we make room for that before we move forward. Okay. God is uncontingent. So, based on how the Scripture would lead us to understand God, I think we can gladly affirm that God's emotional makeup is self-derived and in no way dependent upon us. And that's a good thing. Again, I want to be... I want to be overly clear on this, that doesn't mean that God is distant. It doesn't mean that God is cold. It doesn't mean that God is unfeeling. 
Rather, it means that he's more feeling. Kind of going back to what Joey said, you know, if God was emotionally conditioned by us, we're in trouble. If we can make God feel, bring God down a certain way, we can manipulate him to feel a certain way based on what we do, we're in trouble because we know what we do. And in fact, divine impassibility was a strongly Christian doctrine because it was in opposition to the old school pagan gods. Zeus, Apollo, Athena, these gods were god of, gods of passion. You know, they, they could be really influenced by their people. And so if you, made, if you made Zeus angry, he was liable to break out at you any moment. And so the early church would say, no, 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 that's a, that's a pagan conception of God, a God who can be brought down to our level emotionally manipulated. Rather, this is a true conception of God, a God who doesn't, cannot be drawn down and yanked down to emotional um, emotional contingency. So anyway, um, there's that. And then I want to, again, make a, a caveat here. All that said, there are some very good theologians, some very influential theologians who have sought to strike a balance between impassibility and passability. They advocate for what has been called the sovereignty solution. And to put it succinctly, the sovereignty solution is the view, as we've already talked about, that God's emotional state does not change from the outside, but rather changes according to his own will. And now proponents of this view argue that all is well because God is the author of his own change and not the creature. Thus, they can maintain God's independence and say, yeah, God isn't conditioned by us, but that doesn't mean God can't change himself. And they say God does change himself. And so it's as if God's will is up here and his emotions are down here and God's will controls his emotions. So if the situation requires a certain emotional response, God can will that response and then react appropriately. Karl Barth, um, again, a theologian that I've really enjoyed, um, but I, I disagree with him on this one. He says the personal God can feel and be affected. He is not impassable. He cannot be moved from the outside by an extraneous power, but this does not mean that he is not capable of moving himself. He is moved and changed by himself. And you guys all know J.I. Packer. He recently passed away. He's a wonderful, amazing theologian. Um, and I would love sometime to do a little book study with the church or with the group, this group, about on his book, um, uh, uh, Knowledge, Knowledge of the Holy. No, that's a different one. What is it, honey? Knowing God, um, Knowing God by J.R. Packer. It's a great book. But Packer says, he recently passed away. He says, God's experiences do not come upon him uh, as ours come upon us. For his are foreknown, willed, and chosen by himself and are not involuntary surprises forced upon him from the outside apart from his own decision in the way that ours regularly are. Then he says again, this is another book, God's feelings are not beyond his control as ours often are. Theologians express this by saying that God is impassable. They mean not that he is impassive and unfeeling, but what he feels, like what he does, is a matter of his own deliberative voluntary choice and is included in the unity of his infinite being. God is never our victim in the sense that we make sense in the sense that we make him suffer where he had not first chosen to suffer. So, what they're saying is that, yes, God is, he's not our victim. We can't make him suffer, but, but he says, if God chooses to suffer, if God chooses to allow this for himself, then he can. Okay, and so I want to hold that out as an option, right? If, if the completely uncontingent God, that's really tough, right? That's a hard one to go for. Then, then, then this is a good alternative. I think it has its weaknesses. I think if you affirm this, you're getting really close to, to denying divine simplicity because it does treat God's will and God's emotions as different things. So as God, God decides and he makes these deliberative choices and he chooses how to direct his emotions, whereas if you just say that God is simple, 
These aren't different things in God. Rather, God is just one act. There's no deliberation. There's no, there's no okay, I'm going to respond this way or that way. God simply is pure act. That's philosophical and whatever. So anyway, I just my caveat. But um, a lot of good theologians believe this. Um, it's a popular in Reformed uh, circles that God is in control of how he responds and so on and so forth. So any questions about that one? Yes. Right. I don't know. How could he? How could he change his yeah, right? Right. And 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 of course, that's the line of reasoning that has been followed. Right. God. God is above. He sees it all, and therefore, right. There is no deliberative change or things like that that need to be happened and therefore what you have is other theologies like again I've mentioned these a few times process theology open theology open theology says that God he can't he can't foreknow free human decisions and so God doesn't know the future I mean he can like predict the future almost like the greatest statistician there was or ever will be he can see he knows our nature so he, he they would say okay God knows how things are going to play out based on his infinite knowledge, but he doesn't officially know the future because until we're free, and so until we do it, then how can God really know? That's open theology. Um, maybe you'll hear of this guy. His name's Greg Boyd. He's pretty popular. Um, he's got a lot of books advocating for this position. There's others who are less popular doing the same thing, and then process theology is much similar, is that God's in time, and God is also in this process of discovering who he is, and so he's changing along with us. And these are based, they come out of some 20th century philosophy and, and, and different theologians who kind of laid the seedbed for these things. But So, yeah, some trying to like make sense of that say, well, maybe God is within time, maybe he is open. But I agree with that line of reasoning that, Yeah. But God doesn't, but God's not a man that he would change his mind. Yeah, yeah. And many other scriptures like that. So, yeah, for some that settles the debate, right? It's just, okay, there it is. God doesn't change, so on and so forth. Um, any questions? Because we're going to move forward now to where we can, um, Mike, and we're exchanging emails just about this a little bit earlier. So the, the next part, I guess is the glaring question. If God is incapable of suffering, if he's impassable, Barney, you brought this up, then how can we make sense of the cross? It seems that the cross is, and excuse me, the cross and an impassable God are incompatible to say the least. Jesus suffers on the cross, but then you have an, a God who doesn't suffer. How do you make sense of this? So a little asterisk, uh, caveat here. We're leaving the domain of theology proper and we're going to a whole different domain of Christology. And Christology has its own set of terms. It has its own set of all these different things where with theology proper, I've had to, hey, this is what we mean. Here we're going to move forward. We don't have the time to do all that with Christology. It's a very, very involved question talking about the incarnation and how do these natures interact and so on and so forth. So what we can do here is only treat it in a passing manner. And hopefully in the future, I think maybe one of the future classes we can do is Christology because this is uh, really, really important stuff. So what I want to do first is direct you to the Creed of Chalcedon where we find the church's definitive understanding of Jesus Christ's two natures. A little bit of context. Chalcedon was formulated as these heresies were floating in the air within the church, without the church, about how the two natures of Christ interact. And so they were getting to such an extent that the whole church literally came together and said, okay, let's settle this. Let's figure out what we believe. 
and they put it on paper, hence the Creed of Chalcedon. And this is what they said. I'll read the full thing. It's a little long and it's wordy, so just bear with me, but we'll come back to the main part. It says, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and co-substantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages, the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days was latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. Okay, here's the important part. To be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, that is, without admixture, when God becomes flesh, when the Word becomes flesh, it's not that He absorbs the human aspect into God, such as there was one and one, and now they become two, something different. There's not a confusion. It says, without division, so it's not so that you have, there's God and there's the man in Jesus, but they're not mixed, or they're not, uh, they're not adhering. It's like you got one and you got the other, oil and water, that type of thing. So, without uh, change, that is, again, the divine nature doesn't change the human nature. The human nature doesn't change the divine nature. They stay what they were without division. Again, very straightforward, without separation. The distinction of nature of nature's being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature, on and on and on and on and on. We got to the important part. So, again, the most important phrase of the, or, or stanza of the Chalcedonian Creed is, again, where it talks about those two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And each of those little clauses is designed to combat a heresy. One heresy saying that, oh, it truly changed. One saying that, no, they were, it just appeared like they were in union, so on and so forth. Now, here's where I think passibilist theologians have a problem. Now, again, you can deny that God is impassable, and maybe you don't have this problem, but if you believe that God is impassable, so passibilists who contend that the divine nature suffered on the cross they're doing exactly what the creed prohibits. By attributing a human attribute, passibility, the ability to suffer, the ability to, uh, have, to be acted upon, by attributing a human attribute, passibility, to Christ's divine nature, they confuse the two natures. The human attribute bleeds into the divine such that the divine is truly changed. And that's where you have a problem. Because if God has to divest himself of his impassibility to become uh, human, then what you have in Jesus Christ is someone who's not fully God. God loses something essential to his character, to his nature. Not even his character, to his nature, to his being. He loses what is essential to the divinity to become a human. And then Jesus isn't truly God. So you have to say that if in the incarnation, all the attributes of God are there in Jesus Christ, without division, without so on and so forth, they are there. So thus, Gregory of Nazianzus can say, Christ is passable in his flesh, impassable in his Godhead. The human nature is passable, the, 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 the divine nature is not passable. It, it, it's not to be able to be affected that way. Now, there's a distinction that's made there, and I'm, I'm not as well-versed on this as I should be. I was studying it today, and I just, I gassed out, and I just put it away. But it, it was, uh, theologians make a distinction between nature and person. And again, these are things that are a lot to get into. Maybe in the future we can get into them. But you see why maybe there's some problems with um, saying that the divine nature suffers. Now, it's truly God. It's truly God who's participating. It's truly God in Jesus Christ, but without Impassibility or without uh, passibility, without suffering. Any questions on the incarnation? <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. And, and, I, and I, that's not a great treatment. It really is not. I, I, I wish I could have done better, but uh, again, for another time. So lastly, I'm sorry. I know this one's getting long. Um, our understanding of the scriptures. So I'll be quick. God's emotion is present everywhere in the scriptures. Isaiah 62.5, God rejoices. Isaiah 68, or, uh, Psalm 78.40, Isaiah, uh, uh, Ephesians 4.30, uh, God is grieved. Exodus 3.12, God burns with anger. 32.10, he burns with anger. Um, Psalm 103.8, God is compassionate, right, in emotion. Um, Exodus 20, verse 5, Zechariah, verse, chapter 1, verse 14, he is jealous, and so on and so forth, right? Now, the question is, how do we, again, how do we make sense of these two sets of data? You have one where it says God doesn't change. You have certain elements in Scripture that if you reason through them would lead you to say, yeah, God is impassable, but then you have Scripture saying all these other things. How do we interpret this? So, um, I want to take you to John Calvin, but before I do, um, we want to do the work of Rob Lister. Again, I just want to recommend this book to you guys, Impassioned and Impassable. God is Impassioned and Impassable. I'm through with it. I don't ever want to read this again. So it's there if you guys want to pick it up and go through it yourself. But he says, there, he gives us two helpful guardrails as we consider God's emotion. First, he says there's an ontological distance between the creator and the creature, and that must be accounted for. Um, again, I'm thinking of Jeff's incredibly insightful phrase last week, that we are not God's peers. So when we say there's an ontological distance between God and man, well, that's what we're saying. We're not God's peers. We're not on the same level. He's being itself. We, are, we have our being from him. He's self-sufficient. We are dependent in every way. He's unchangeable. We are in a state of being and becoming. So therefore, Lister says, we ought never to expect to have a univocally shared emotional experience with God. Remember, univocal, it means one-to-one. So we should never expect to have a one-to-one shared emotional experience with God. Put differently, we will never know what it is to experience emotion as one who is sovereign, self-sufficient, omniscient, eternal, and so forth. So it's one thing to talk about emotions down here, but when we go up to God who is eternal, self-sufficient, omniscient, eternal, all these other things, then it's a whole different ballgame. How can we even describe emotion as it pertains to this being, right? Our words fail. So the second factor we must bring into consideration, Lister says, is the ethical distance between God's emotions and ours. So we must take into account God's otherness, his transcendence, and we must also take into consideration God's holiness. Lister says, Lister says excuse me, the fall did not eviscerate us of the image of God, structurally speaking. Instead, it put our image-bearing equipment, which was originally given to use for God-glorifying purpose, purposes, to wicked usage. What all this means for our study of divine impassibility is that we cannot, in this age, trust our emotional experience as a guide to the univocal understanding of divine emotion. So he's saying, and he goes on to say, even with regeneration, our emotions still aren't a good guide to say, yeah, that's what God's emotions are like. Because we know how, even with the Holy Spirit, our anger and our, uh, all the different emotions, whatever they may be, are inherently still corrupted by sin. So he says we have to remember that as we start thinking about God and man. And another thing we have to think about is how our emotions filter through our body. We're body and soul. So Mike said it insightfully that, we have these things within us, but then they're worked out through the body, right? They're drawn out of us. And so as much as my emotions can be a response to what someone did to me, they can be a response to something in my body. You can have your thyroid mess up and you're, full of, you're anxious and all this other stuff for no fault of your own. This is just part of your body. And so as you think how emotions work their way through our body and through our souls, it's like then, then you go to God who is not body, not even soul, but pure spirit, then you have, again, there's more issues to consider there. So I'm just trying to complicate the picture. So how then should we read the scriptures? And here's where John Calvin says, again, I'm not a Calvinist, but he's right on a lot of things. John Calvin is 
if you just take away his doctrine of election and take him on everything else, he's really good. He's really, really good. Um, he, in his sermon on Genesis 6-6, which states, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. He then tries to teach his con- uh, 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 congregation how to interpret this. He says, Certainly God is not sorrowful or sad, but remains forever like himself in his celestial and happy repose. So he says God's not, not um, he's not sorry or he isn't grieved in his heart, but he remains forever like himself in celestial and happy repose. Yet because it could not otherwise be known how great is God's hatred and detestation of sin, therefore the Spirit accommodates himself to our capacity. God, in order more effectually to pierce our hearts, clothes himself with our affections. This figure, which represents God as transferring to himself what is particular to human nature, is called anthropomorphism. So, first, we see that Calvin maintains impassibility. He does not, that is, God, he says, does not become sad or angry. Rather, he is always perfectly, uh, he's always perfectly in himself. He's always in this, what does he say, uh, happy, uh, celestial and happy repose. He says, though he's incapable of every feeling of perturbation, this is from another quote, he declares that he's angry with the wicked. So, again, Calvin is denying that God is capable of feeling um, anxiety or mental uneasiness, right? So when it says God, he, 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 He's grieved and he regrets. He's saying that doesn't mean God has mental anxiety or uneasiness. Again, in other words, God is not overcome by his emotions like humans are, such that he feels frantic and agitated. Rather, he says, God remains forever like himself in celestial and happy repose. That is, he is always who he is, utterly unconditioned and undetermined by our sinful actions. He is impassable. Or in other words, I am who I am. But, notice, Calvin doesn't deny emotion in God however, altogether, however we might understand that. So he says, yeah, God, God isn't affected by us, but that doesn't mean God doesn't have emotions. He adds, because it cannot otherwise be known how great is God's hatred and detestation of sin, therefore the Spirit accommodates himself to our capacity. So the Spirit's words about God being angry, angry and even sorrowful are not empty placeholders, as if he were putting on a show. But rather, they do indicate something true and real in the divine life. Something that can be communicated to us only through the medium of human words and human ideas. We're incapable of understanding those things as they are in God. Therefore, God has to express himself in human terms. So, again, that's a lot to understand. um, And I'm not even sure if it helps... But the important thing is that, when, that what we remember when we're reading Scripture is that you don't have to be proficient in all the theological handiwork, but you do have to remember that God is not one of us. He is eternal, all-knowing, unchanging, and perfect in every way. Therefore, whatever His emotions are, they're infinitely greater than ours. We just want to put a bottom line and a cap on it, and so... With that, I'll close just with a few practical considerations, and we'll circle around to what we said. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. Again, take comfort in God's emotional um, uncontingency and his impassibility. Because he is, he's, his emotion, emotions are governed by his own goodness, by his own wisdom, by his own compassion, and so on and so forth, we are not consumed. And that's a great thought, because, again, even in all your failure, all my failure, and all our mess-ups in life, the Lord is never brought down to the level of treating us as we deserve. He's, he, he's not, it's not like that we take something from him, and so he has to exact revenge. It's not that we harm him, and so he has some personal stake in it. Rather... God is who he is, and therefore he can simply treat us according to his nature and not ours. Think of Psalm 51. David says, and I'll, let me just read it for you. And I've had to lean on this more times than I'm proud to admit. 
But listen, listen to what David asks of God. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Lord, be gracious to me, not according to what I deserve, but according to your loving kindness. Deal with me impassably, is what he's saying. Deal with me according to who you are, not according to my sins. And God does. Praise God that he does. Therefore, we're not consumed. Therefore, we have a future and a hope. God's plans aren't for our harm, but for our good. The end. 